Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available, ready to eat, with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture design specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're chatting with Dan Jurafsky about the language of food. He analyzes restaurant menus and the historical context behind modern English food names. You know, normally when we borrow foods, we do borrow the word with them. That's, that is the most common situation. 
Like, you know, when you start eating bok choy, we use the word bok choy. We don't call it Chinese white flowering cabbage. And there, there's something about the name of a food. It's as if, you know, names get at some kind of inner primal essence. And so ketchup is just ketchup. Like, how could you call it something else? Also coming up, we make crispy German pork schnitzel. And J. Kenji Lopez all talks through the relationship that young children develop with food. But first up, it's my interview with author, songwriter, and professor Alice Randall about gospel singer Mahalia Jackson and her fried chicken restaurants. Alice, welcome to Milk Street. It's wonderful to be with you, Chris. So um, this is a story about Mahalia Jackson and a fried chicken franchise. I guess fried chicken and gospel and church uh, have a long history together. They do, Um, but I do want to note that people think of fried chicken as of the iconic soul food, but fried chicken was not commonly eaten by black people until the mid and early 1960s on a regular basis in the United States. You know, as in the plantation South, fried chicken was not something that enslaved Africans would have eaten And it was only with things such as the Colonel's Fried Chicken, the Haley Jackson's, these fried chicken enterprises, that fried chicken becomes a weekly, daily event or staple on the African-American table. So, okay, Colonel Sanders comes along. You mentioned that. Uh, All of a sudden, there was an interest in, in financing chicken franchises, Minnie Pearl from the Grand Ole Opry, uh, and then Mahalia Jackson. Um, for Mahalia Jackson, this was not a money-making opportunity. This was something quite different. Absolutely. For Mahalia Jackson, this was a kind of church. This was a sacred act that actually had to do with money-making, but not money-making for Mahalia. She was very interested in creating economic opportunity for others. When she decided to get involved with fried chicken in this corporate way, she was trying to move fried chicken out of the kitchen, out of the history of domestic service, into an environment where black people and particularly black women could work and make money selling fried chicken in a safe space. So Mahalia thought about this as an opportunity in terms of the workplace and the pride of the workplace. Exactly how did she think about it? Well, she was very concerned with workers' rights. So specifically, she offered her employees paid vacations, low-cost life insurance, and major medical benefits. She also eventually will actually start a management school for these employees. The idea was that they would come in and grow and rise, not that they would come in and stay in the same low-paid position in which they arrived. She started them higher and planned on lifting them higher, just like that song of hers. Was there someone who was really keen on the food itself and trying to define the food at that franchise as being different or better than other places? Well, frankly, what the focus was, was quality food at a price. And the whole spin was that the physical place would honor African-Americans, that it looked like a church that would be lovely, that there was thought even put into the architecture. Because even if you had the experience of going to a black-owned meet-and-three, 
most of these establishments struggled to survive. They were not highly profitable entities that were able to offer you a thought out, elegant, but simple table that Mahalia Jackson's was able to offer. She was obviously very special, uh, also as a singer and a performer. You write, Mahalia could turn a congregation into an audience, and an audience is a more powerful thing than a congregation. Could you talk about that? I think it's a lovely turn of phrase. I absolutely can. The person who appreciated that more than any other person was Martin Luther King. A congregation is always a supplicant. An audience makes demands. An audience is a collaborator who makes transformation possible. Martin Luther King loved to have Mahalia Jackson with him. He considered her to be one of his closest friends. It is not just an apocryphal story. There's good documentation. She is the one who told him to say at the March on Washington, tell them about the dream. It was Mahalia Jackson that he had leading the political audience with Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho. She would only sing gospel, I believe. Uh, she was not interested in commercial recordings like rock and roll, right? Right. She began her life singing in the church like so many Black people. She, and she starts off as a domestic servant, as a maid in New Orleans. But in 1947, she will have a giant hit record. And it's going to sell 8 million copies. <laughs> 8 million records back then in 1947. This is Beyonce big right. in the context of the time. And what was the name of the song? That song was Move On Up A Little Higher. And this is a really fascinating and complicated song that includes food imagery. I'm going to feast with the Rose of Sharon. I think it speaks directly into the experience of Black women working as domestic servants, and it speaks to the experience of all Black people either being invited to or restricted from a table. I love the quote from Mahalia. Uh, she says, I've seen men that have lost their pride, and I brought them to my house. I would feed those people, make big bowls of potato salad, and today that's my joy when people come to my house. So I love the way she's connected food and feeding people to people who've lost their pride. You want to just talk about that? I think that Mahalia offered food as a balm in Gilead. The process of being African in these Americas, it's an emotional, physical, and economic assault. I think that there are two great ways uh, to feed people with food and with music. And Mahalia gave both. So it's been almost 50 years now since Mahalia Jackson's restaurants closed. Why do they stay in the memory and are so beloved even today when so many other franchises went out of business and everyone's forgotten them? Simply that hour at Mahalia's was sacred, that you got to sit at the table, receive the food, be respected, and knowing you are respecting the person who was serving and the person who was cooking, that it was food without tragedy. And in Black space and Black food world, that is a memorable triumph. Oh. 
soon as my feet strike Zion, I'm a little. That was author and professor Alice Randall. Her article for Gravy is Glory Fried and Glory Fied. Mahalia Jackson's Chicken. You know I'm gonna shout, Lord, and tell my story. I've been coming over hilltop mountain. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will be answering your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. So before we get to calls, Sarah, I have a question. You're a good leftover person in terms of reusing stuff. So what's your best leftover recipe? Oh, goodness. It's sort of boring. It all just goes into soup. There you go. Whatever it is, add beans, add leftover starch, you know, some tomato product, chicken broth, you're good to go. And then throw a little grated Parmesan cheese on top. So is this like my neighbor in Vermont who made compost soup? So whatever left over was the starting soup for the next day? Yes, exactly. Compost soup is brilliant title. I love that. Well, she had soup that was 10 years old, I think. Oh, dear, that's frightening. (laughs) No, no, no. Our stuff only makes it one extra day. Oh, but I will tell you one, and I may have shared this once before. It's my mother's recipe, which is when we make mashed potatoes, even if it's smashed potatoes, you know, with the skin still in it, I make double. And then the next day, you know, they're much firmer than they were day one. You shape them into patties. You season them first, dip them into Wonder Flour, and then saute them in either butter or olive oil until they get Mm. crispy, over low heat. And they are so delicious. They're almost better than they were round once. That was a good one. Glad I asked. Okay, Okay. let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Sharon Burnham from Roanoke, Virginia. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm pretty good. How can we help you today? Well, I got interested in attempting to make Emily Dickinson's black cake. I happen to like a good fruit cake, and this seemed like a wonderful idea to make in advance so that I could give it away at Christmas time. But when I was researching various recipes, I was really struck by the difference in temperature and length of cooking time. And it made me wonder how that affects the actual bake of a fruit-heavy cake. What were some of the lower temperatures and what were some of the higher temperatures? Two of the three recipes have you bake at 250 degrees. One of those is for three hours. The other you bake for two hours with a pan of water sitting below the loaf Mm -hmm. pans, and then you remove the pan of water and bake for another hour and a half. The recipe that I was planning to follow, because I like the individual fruits that they choose for it, uses the standard 350 degrees, and it says it only bakes for an hour. It seems so different between them that I was curious what effect the temperature has. There are two totally different ways of looking at this. Personally, I would go with a lower temperature, and the reason is puddings, you know, English desserts, were steamed. And steam isn't going to get all that hot. It's boiling water. It has a little more energy than water does, but it's not going to be 350 degrees. So it's going to give you a more gradual heat, even heat. And if you have a big, heavy, dense batter, it might be the way to go. If you use a higher temperature, 
you get more Maillard reaction. That is, Maillard reaction has to occur at a temperature over 300 degrees. So you might get some more browning. But I don't think this kind of dense cake is about browning, like angel food cake or something. I think you want thorough, even heating of a very dense batter. So I'm going to pick door number two, which is the one that's at the lower temperature for the longer time, because it's dense, you want even cooking, and you could end up with an overcooked outer perimeter at 350 before the inside really gets fully cooked. Fruitcakes are not things where there's a big rise anyway. It's not like a chiffon cake. I go low and slow. And now Sarah's going to go at No, high speed. I'm going to pick door number three, which Uh-oh. is the one with the bowl of water. I sort of like that idea of the added moisture in the oven and then remove the moisture and then let it finish cooking through. The low temperature is going to give you a denser, moister product. I, I think, think so. The higher temperature is going to give you something more like banana bread. I mean, it's going to be a little drier and, and probably a little lighter. Mm-hmm. I think the tradition here is dense and moist. I agree. We actually uh, agree. It's rare. Well, I <laughs> like that idea, too, baking low and slow. Yeah. Yeah. Sharon, please reach out after you've done it and let us know how it went. All right. I will. And I hope when I give them away, people won't go, oh, fruitcake, because it's not a fruitcake. It's a black cake. (laughs) Yes, yes. Just call it that. (laughs) Just throw in Emily Dickinson. That'll help. Add a poem or two. I I plan to do that, actually. I just haven't decided on which one. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Sharon. A literary culinary question. Thank you. We like that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi. uh, My name's Becky. I'm from Collingswood, New Jersey. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for taking my call. My question is about breakfast sausage. When I was growing up, we would slice the uh, sausage patties and put them in an iron skillet. And by the time they were done, they'd released all this wonderful fat. And the texture of the sausage was crisp on the outside and tender on the inside. But now... When I buy sausage, it barely releases any fat, and the texture is rather chewy. So my question is, what has changed? Two things. Pigs today have a bread for lower fat content, so you're dealing with leaner meat to start with. Mm -hmm. I mean, any sausage, you're adding fat to it. It's not just ground pork. You'd want to add at least 30% fat, roughly, to the meat, So my guess is that whoever is preparing that sausage is adding much less fat to it and starting with leaner meat to start with. The really good breakfast sausage is usually done by a local butcher. You can actually ask them to add more fat. But if you're buying in a supermarket, it's going to tend to be lean. It's about the pork and it's about the amount of fat you're adding back in when you grind it. Okay. Sarah? Yeah, no, I agree 100%. I mean, I don't know if you're asking us, Becky, how to make your own, are you? Well, yes, you know. What if I was to take, say, a piece of pork shoulder? Which is the appropriate cut of pork you'd want to use, yeah, and grind it up. Would a food processor work for that? I don't have a meat grinder. Do you have a stand mixer? Yes. Do you have the grinding attachment? No, I don't. Okay, well, there's a quick way to grind up meat. You cut the meat into, say, one-inch chunks and throw it in the freezer for about a half an hour, you know, in like one layer. And then in small batches, no more than one pound at a time, pulse it in a food processor until you get the texture that you're looking for. 
And if you're using pork shoulder, just make sure there's a fair amount of fat in there. And then after you've ground it up, you can add your seasonings, whatever you're going to add. I like thyme. Sometimes a few sweet spices go in there. And you can just make it into patties like hamburgers and fry it up, and it should be yummy. If it were me, I would separate the meat from the fat, and I would use leaf lard. I would use the fat around the kidney, if you can buy that, and use that as your fat. When you make a sausage, you have to divide the fat from the meat because you have to get the right ratio. Just grinding up a shoulder is probably not going to do it. You are going to have to add fat in to get the right percentage because the percentage is really critical. Okay. And if you can get the fat around the kidney, and a butcher shop would have that, not rendered, but just the raw fat, that would be the right. thing to, to use. I have an actual sausage grinder. You know, if you're making a ton of sausage, that's great, but you can use what uh, Sarah suggested. Or the food processor for small amounts will work as well. You yeah, know. you just want okay. it to be cold. It won't grind up as well if, if it's at room temperature, so you want it to right. be partially frozen. Okay. Well, Thanks for calling. Hopefully that's helpful. More yes. fat. More fat. <laughs> okay. We all agree about that. Sounds good. Take care. Yes. Thank you so much. This is Mill Street Radio. Give us a ring anytime. The number is 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Denise Moon from Southern California. Hi, Denise. How can we help you today? Well, I've been trying to make a sage butter sauce for spaghetti and pasta and gnocchis. And I've been finding that my sage butter sauce just doesn't have that rich, deep flavor. And I'm using my fresh sage that I have from the garden. They're broad leaves. When I cut them, they have wonderful oils and smells. But I'm just not getting that oomph that I would like to have that you can say, yes, I'm tasting that sage. Tell me how you're making your sauce. Well, I start with browning the butter. And then I take my fresh sage and I chop it up into kind of broad pieces. And I also rub them to kind of break the oil. And then I put them into the butter and let it brown some more. And it has very nice aromatic smell, but then when I put it in with the pasta, it doesn't have that sage flavor. Huh. Let me ask you, are you adding any salt to the recipe? No. I think that might be part of the problem. I think you need to point it up a bit with some salt. How much butter for how much pasta? I was between four and six tablespoons of butter for about eight to 12 ounces of pasta. That might be enough. One last question. Are you really browning the butter nicely? I mean, does it have a nice nutty color and aroma? Because my pan is dark, I can't really say, and I haven't really checked to see if it was nutty or had oh, a nice you know aroma. What? So. That might be the problem right there because you're missing that toasty, oasty, buttery flavor. See if you can find a pan that's not dark on the bottom and make sure that you get it nice and golden and toasty smelling and make sure you have enough sage in there as well and do add some salt to it for sure or toss in some Parmesan cheese when you add it to the pasta as well. Chris, what do you think? I just want to confirm that my co-host said toasty-osty. Is that what she said? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> 
It's hosty, well, hosty. too much time inside. What I, can I, I tell I, you? I have a totally different thought. Okay. I've grown my own sage for many years. And I think sage is like mint. There must be 500 different varieties. I'd pick a leaf and rub it in my fingers as you did. And it has sage flavor. My guess is I just didn't have a potent enough sage. So I agree mm-hmm. with the butter. By the way, even in a dark pan, if you tip the pan away from you, you can kind of see when it collects at the other edge. You can get some idea of the color. I think you just are growing a form of sage that probably isn't as concentrated in flavor as what you need. So my guess is if you look it up in the seed catalog or whatever, you can end up with a maybe a more culinary sage that has a stronger flavor. Because I know there's a whole bunch of different varieties out there. And do add some okay. Parmesan or some salt. Mm-hmm. I think that might help there, too. Well, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for calling. I appreciate that. Yes, thanks, Denise. Make sure that butter's toasty-osty. Yes. I will. All right. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with linguist Dan Jurafsky. That and more in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. 
I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with allagashoid. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of allagash white to it. A lot of people use allagash white in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Your Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Professor Dan Jurafsky about the language of food. Dan, welcome to Milk Street. Chris, thanks so much for having me. Uh, the language of food. Um, is there a language or a culture that's used now that's replaced French, or is French still there, albeit in smaller numbers? Well, there's a, a little bit of use of French still to indicate high culture, but really the change that we've seen is to something that's often called cultural omnivorousness. Like instead of having one high culture like French, every aspect of our culture can be used to, to indicate status. So if you look at modern menus, you know, what do fancy restaurants do on menus? Well, they talk about um, the ranch or the farm where the food is grown. They talk about the provenance of the food. So knowing where your food is from is sort of a mark now of status in the way that, you know, 100 years ago, if you look at menus in San Francisco, even the Italian menus, if it was a fancy restaurant, the Italian menus were all in French. What are the techniques people use today to get people to buy certain things on the menu, and I assume the more expensive items. Oh, there's all sorts of interesting techniques. And one thing you can see about menus is the techniques you use to sell the food and convince your customers to buy are really different depending on the price of the restaurant. So for example, some restaurants use these beautiful sensory adjectives, your crispies and buttery, flaky, fluffy, and that tends to be your middle-priced restaurants. The cheapest restaurants, they tend to use these words like gourmet or tasty or delicious. Now, an expensive restaurant's not going to say delicious because they want you to assume their food is delicious. They're not going to go out of their way to, to bring it up as a discussion. Let's talk about Yelp. Uh, you did a study on a million Yelp reviews as well as five million reviews on peer review websites. What did you learn about that? What kind of words do people use? Are good reviews different than bad reviews? This was a really interesting set of results. So we went looking at reviews, figuring we'd find, oh, people who don't like a restaurant will complain about greasy food or too much salt or something. 
And what we found is if you, if you look at the one-star reviews, the reviews where people really hated the restaurant, they don't talk about the food at all. <laughs> they use words like horrible and awful. Okay, that's sensible. But what they talked about was people. So if you look at the oh. words they used a lot, they used words like he and she and the waitress and the manager and the waiter. And these stories were in the past. They used past tense words like waited and was. And finally, they use the first person plural, the word we, the word us, the word ourselves. So, you know, you see a sentence like, we were ignored until we flagged down a waiter to get our waitress. So we thought, well, what's going on here? What, what kind of genre of language has negative words in the past tense about people and lots of mentions of the first person plural? And we found that there's a psychological literature on this. So text written by people who suffer trauma. So it's people who, yeah, after there's been a, a death in the community or a fire, people are writing in the past tense because they want to distance themselves from this traumatic experience. And they use words like we because we got, we'll get through this together. You know, we right. as a community will get to this traumatic event. So it's as if a one-star review is telling you that this person suffered trauma at this restaurant. And, and that tells you it's not about the food. The one-star reviews, it's all about the personal interaction. Um Junk foods, potato chips, uh, what are the issues there, let's say, between an expensive bag of chips and an inexpensive bag? Yes, it's it's really the same as menus. The more expensive the potato chip, the more likely they are to tell you where it comes from. Hmm. And the other thing that potato chips do, this is different than menus, is the expensive potato chips talk a lot about how healthy they are. You know, the more expensive a chip, if you look at the bag, it's going to tell you that it doesn't have any trans fats in it. Now, no chips have trans fats because trans fats are to make things thicker. So cheap chips don't have trans fats either, but they just don't mention it. You know, everyone knows that potato chips are not good for you, but the expensive chips are sort of going out of their way to try to reassure you so you could pretend that they're good for you. It's kind of interesting that people want to be sold on something they know isn't true. Do you think part of this is... is <laughs> Getting consumers to fool themselves long enough to buy the product? I, I think that's a great metaphor. I mean, the goal is to convince someone to do this thing you want them to do. And one way to do that is to appeal to their subconscious. So, you know, appeal to the, the what they would like to believe or who they would like to be deep down. One of the most interesting parts of the book was sound symbolism. And you talked about front vowels and back vowels. Could you talk about that? Yeah, this is a very fascinating part of linguistics that, uh, you know, it's something that happens to us all the time and we don't notice it. So there are different kinds of vowels. And so in some vowels, like if you just you know, stop and make the sound E as in cheese, and you can feel yourself making a smile when you make cheese and your mouth kind of goes wide. And it turns out your tongue is in the very front part of your mouth. When you when you widen your mouth like that, your tongue tip goes to the front of the mouth. And if you make a different kind of vowel like ooh, like, like tool, now your tongue is in the back of the mouth. And when your tongue is in the front of the mouth, you're making a particular kind of high-pitched sound. And when your tongue is in the back of the mouth, you're making a kind of a low-pitched sound. And it turns out that... We naturally associate high pitches with small objects and big pitches with large objects. And that's not surprising. Like little birds, they have high-pitched chirps and big lions have these low-pitched roars. And somehow that kind of subconscious innate association extends to all sorts of other things. So when we have 
front vowels that have extra little high pitches, we associate them with things that we'd like to be light and thin and small, like crackers. And so you get words like Cheez-It and Wheat Thins and Crispy Ritz, all these I vowels. But something that you would like to be solid and heavy and rich, well, that's ice cream. And look at ice cream names. Fudge and chocolate and caramel and coconut and Rocky Road, all these ahs and o's. And so we did an experiment just comparing the vowels in ice cream flavor names and cracker names. And sure enough, you're twice as likely to have the front vowels in the cracker names and the back vowels in the ice cream names. So here's another thing that, you know, I don't know if it, when you name a cracker, are you thinking this? Well, maybe not consciously, but but advertisers do know about this. You know, linguists write about this phenomenon. It's called sound symbolism. Uh, Cheerios, from a linguistic point of view, what, what, what could you tell me about Cheerios? Oh, Cheerios is great because it has, you know, it has that homonym to cheer. So it automatically is a happy word. And it's playful because it has the O in it. And the O is the shape of the, of, of and it, you could make that shape with your mouth. And O is a, a particularly good one because the shape of the the vowel that we write, O, kind of makes the shape of the lips when you're making the O. So it's very symbolic. So I think Cheerios is a great name. Any other really common uh, food product that you really would put on the uh, the Hall of Fame list? I don't know. I think some of the interesting ones are ones that weren't made up, but somehow we have stayed around for a long time. I mean, you know, ketchup, like ketchup is a ancient Chinese word stuck around for a thousand years. Like, how come? Why do you think it's so powerful? Well, you know, in Cantonese, jup means sauce. So it still means you know, it has the sauce word kind of in it. But in English, we don't see that. So, um, it, you know, it's kind of the American sauce with a word that's very foreign. You know, normally when we borrow foods, we do borrow the word with them. That's, that is the most common situation. Like, you know, when you start eating bok choy, we use the word bok choy. We don't call it Chinese white flowering cabbage. And there, there's something about the name of a food. It's as if you know, names get at some kind of inner primal essence. And so ketchup is just ketchup. Like, how could you call it something else? Do you think that products that are have two words have a particular power in them? Rocky Road, Pop-Tarts, Cheese Doodles. I mean, this because it gives you an opportunity to play one thing off the other. Oh, that's really good. I think you're right. And it also gives you a chance to have some prosody, to have a kind of a rhythm. Prosody is like the rhythm of a phrase. Like one word doesn't have a lot of rhythm. But if you've got two words, now you've got two different stressed syllables you could play with. Now you can imagine music going to it. So I think you're right. You have more You have more fun you can do when you get, a, get to a couple of words. So when you go to the supermarket, do you <laughs> go for two reasons? One is to buy what you need. And the other is it's a form of sort of professional entertainment. Very much so. I mean, you know, as a kid, I read the back of the cereal box because that's what you do. But now, yeah, menus and advertising and um, reviews, you know, we think about it, we're especially in this online world, you know, the, the web is made of words, like there's words everywhere around us. And as a linguist, what a fascinating way to spend your day is, is, uh, is looking behind the words to see what people are thinking. Dan, thank you very much. Um, I'll never go to the supermarket uh, in the same way again. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for having me. That was Dan Jurafsky. He 
is professor of linguistics and computer science at Stanford University, also author of The Language of Food, A Linguist Reads the Menu. You know, in the country, we name places after the people who live there. In my Vermont town, there's a Bentley Road and a Minister Hill, and houses are named after former residents. I now live in the Graham House, although I've lived there long enough that locals have started calling it the Kimball House. The same used to apply to foods. Their names made a lot of sense. Pot roast is cooked in a pot. Mashed potatoes are mashed. Apple pies contain apples. Then store-bought food names started getting fancy. Sugar Pops, New Fizz, Twizzlers, Mike and Ike, Twinkies, and Cheese Whiz. Like everything else in our culture, food had to be sold, not just described. You know, Frank Zappa named his daughter Moon Unit Zappa. I guess he was just ahead of his time. It's time to check in with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, German pork schnitzel. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. As you know, my mother-in-law was born in Salzburg, and we go back as often as we can. And we go to Vienna, too, because my wife has a cousin there. And we have, of course, Wiener schnitzel, which uh, really was a revelation to me because it's incredibly crisp and light. And it's one of those dishes where if you do it right, it's heavenly. and You do it wrong, it's greasy and thick and chewy, and it's just really not appealing. So our food editor, Matt Card, was in Berlin a year ago, and they also make schnitzel there, but not veal. They make something else, right? That's right, Chris. So our food editor was in Berlin. He went to a restaurant and worked with a chef there who made Schweineschnitzel, which is actually pork schnitzel, kind of not how maybe most Americans think of schnitzel. They think of it with veal. He liked what he called the zaftig quality of pork, which is rich and fatty, has a ton more flavor. So in our version, we're using pork tenderloin that we cut into four pieces and pound it really nice and thin so it cooks really fast. It's almost, I would call it, face sized piece of pork. It's really big, but very thin. So it gets really nice and crisp. And so the coating, is this the classic panko breadcrumb trick or what are we doing? It's not. So this is kind of a major difference between schnitzel and just your typical breaded cutlet. Schnitzel is meant to be crisp, as you said. It's not crunchy. So you don't want that craggy coating on it. You want a really fine breadcrumb. What we found in Germany was they use Kaiser rolls and just dry them in the oven and then blitz them in the food processor for a really fine crumb. It's really sweet and weedy flavor, but again, that's kind of crisp but not crunchy. So if you don't have a bread box full of Kaiser rolls, what do you do? You can just buy regular dry breadcrumbs, but don't use the panko. Okay. So the cooking method is a shallow fry, I guess, in a skillet, but is there a method to the madness here? (laughs) There is, and it's kind of the hallmark of schnitzel. Schnitzel has a sort of wavy crust on it, separates from the meat a little bit, but you want to make sure it doesn't fall off, which is why it's a little bit tricky to do. We actually do ours in a Dutch oven to kind of keep the splatter contained. And then when you put the pork into the hot oil, you kind of shake the pan a little bit, and that gives it that undulating crust. It's the wave. It's the wave. I mean, this is just one of my favorite dishes of all time. So now we've cooked the cutlet. We're just serving this, you know, on a Kaiser roll, or what, how are we eating it? <laughs> so you serve it on a plate, a little squeeze of lemon, a dollop of lingonberry jam, if you have it, and it can just kind of live all on its own. So we started in Austria, in uh, Salzburg, ended up in Berlin. But it's still a schnitzel is a schnitzel, right? It's a very similar technique. 
Serve it if you have it with lingonberry jam, which is traditional. German pork schnitzel. Thank you very much, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for German pork schnitzel at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt discusses how to turn young kids into adventurous eaters. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available, ready to eat, with cold-smoked, ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Most Jay Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Marta in Rock Hall, Maryland. Hi, Marta. How can we help you today? Well, I have a large fig tree that is very <laughs> prolific, and I am looking for some ideas on what to do with the bounty from this tree. Um, they are brown turkey figs. I gather they aren't quite as sweet as other varieties of figs, and um, I'm now in the second harvest of the year and running out of ideas. After you do the blue cheese and figs appetizer and fig jam and a fig Mm. cake, you kind of go, okay, now what next? Well, I guess we're heading towards preserving land here, maybe. That would be a good direction to go. You could put them into a sugar syrup with some spices and, you know, cook them gently that way and then give that, I'm thinking of Christmas too, give that as gifts or maybe even do them in a sort of a wine syrup, which would be counterbalance some of the sweetness or dullness. I mean, I like figs, but the acidity is pretty low for the most part, so they're a little bit flat. Or you could pickle them, do sort of a pickled, you know, with a combination of sugar and acid and spices, uh, maybe like apple cider vinegar and honey, and then um, that would be a nice conserve, so to speak, to serve, say, with salty cheeses. Again, maybe a nice uh, Christmas gift. Chris? Well, I just have two ideas for cooking and eating as much as you can while they last. I like to broil them. Oh, yeah. Drizzle with honey, especially because these are not as sweet, and broil them and then serve them with like either, you know, some Greek yogurt or vanilla ice cream. Uh Uh-huh. Instant dessert, and you could do a whole bunch of them at once. I've been really into chicken tray bakes lately, which you just take chicken parts. In the middle, you put some herbs and some garlic and some other things, but just sprinkling figs cut in half with the chicken and then finishing off and make a sauce in the middle of the pan. But they would be great with roasted chicken that way. But I think the broiled figs with honey would be a a must. Yeah, those are great ideas. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you had a savory idea. I think chicken and figs would go really well in a broil, yeah. Bacon and figs, it's a happy match, too. Yeah, Yeah, okay, great. Thank you. There you go. Give it a shot. Thank you very much. Okay, Marta. Thanks, Marta. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you're in a cooking rut, give us a call. The number is 855-426-9843. One more time and slowly, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Yes, good afternoon. It's uh, Les Chuckley calling you from uh, Waterloo, Ontario. And how can we help you? I've been looking for a recipe for a ham pot pie, similar to a chicken pot pie, and I don't know if you could just replace the chicken with the ham, so to speak, <laughs> uh, for a recipe. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah, this would be a very <laughs> short call. Yes, you can. I mean, you know, you make a roux with some chicken stock of velouté, which is basically the sauce. You have some pre-cooked potatoes and carrots in there. Okay. You put the ham instead of the chicken, which is no problem. You might think about slightly different seasonings in the velouté and the sauce. You know, put it in a 9 by 13 or whatever it is with a pastry crust on top. You're good to go. But, I mean, Sarah, you could just replace the chicken with a ham. Well, right? I do have one question, though. When you say ham, you mean cured ham, smoked ham. Correct. In terms of your liquid, I would make sure that whatever chicken broth you used was either low-sodium or homemade so that you didn't have additional salt added to the recipe. Otherwise, it could be pretty inedible with a ton of ham in there. So that would be my only caveat. But other than that, the scenario that Chris just outlined makes complete sense, the usual way to make a pot pie. Yeah, I'd just just like to say a word in defense of chicken pot pie. Boy, the crust and the creamy velote sauce and the chicken and the potatoes. And I mean, pretty yummy. I got to put that back into my repertoire. I know, really. <laughs> One thing I, I would say, though, is to make sure that you cool the filling somewhat before you put the crust on it so that it doesn't melt the pie dough before you want the pie dough to poof up a bit in the right. oven. And so you don't want to melt out the butter that's in the pie dough. So that's the only thing I would say. Some pie crust you kind of bake in the oven first, so you take it out and then you put the filling in and then you put it back in the oven. Well, that would uh, only be if you're doing a double crust and you didn't want the bottom to be soggy. Do you usually do a double crust pot pie? I do, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah then you're going to want to pre-bake the bottom. I think that would be a good idea, yeah. Double crust pot pie is pretty serious business, though, you know. You're not kidding around here. I mean, yeah, that's no, like... No, this is a, this is a serious cook I've only done to. single crust. I don't even go there, so... Well, that's very, very helpful. I very much appreciate that. Okay. Great. Some recipes suggest put corn in it. I would put peas in it, which is Yeah, I love so. peas and P- Peas pie. really You're making us hungry. <laughs> well, peas and carrots are always a nice combination. Yeah. Pretty traditional, yeah. yeah. You know, that's yeah. one of those recipes that, Sarah, we're going to have to bring it back. You know, we thing, are. Right? Absolutely. My husband would be so thrilled. He even eats the <laughs> horrible frozen ones. Leslie, uh, thank you so much. It's yes. been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you for your time. It, uh, it was a privilege to speak to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Yeah, take care. Bye now. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary inspiration from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Nancy in Brooklyn, and here is my waste not, want not tip. You know how you can't get the honey out of the crevices in the honey jar, the last bit of honey? Well, if you swish some hot, almost boiling water around in there, you then have some honey-sweetened water, which you can use, as I am, in making a hot toddy for some other appropriate destination that you might have in mind. Anyway, that's my tip. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Mill Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's food science writer, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. Kenji, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm sure you've been doing well, but um, you've probably been cooking, too. I have been, yes. <laughs> cooking quite a bit, uh, <laughs> quite a bit more recently, actually. So I have a kid's book that just came out, um, Every Night is Pizza Night. Um, and I've also started a new column called Food Lab Junior, which is about recipes and tips for cooking with kids. So I thought maybe we could talk today about um, strategies for getting your kids to eat better and to help them uh, get more involved in the kitchen. 
So you you're, remind me, you're, I've met your daughter. She's three-ish, something. Yeah, like three and a half. So you're gonna you're gonna tell me that you have an idyllic world uh, <laughs> with your three year old at home in the kitchen. I just know that's what you're gonna say. <laughs> I well, I wouldn't call it idyllic exactly, but um, I sort of subscribe to the theory that the reason kids become picky eaters is because food is sort of the one place in their life where they get to express an opinion because everything else in their life is so heavily guided and chaperoned. Hmm. So when they're at the table and they can pick up that thing and throw it on the floor and say they don't want it, you know, that's that's it's not really about them disliking the food. It's more about them expressing an opinion and, and sort of proving that they're their own person. So rather than giving them, you know, one or two things on their plate um, and making them eat all of it, um, you know, we, we try and have sort of an, an array of different foods, colors and textures on the plate. And so, you know, that way, if she says today, I don't feel like eating carrots, for instance, and then, you know, that's that's fine. She doesn't have to eat carrots that day. And maybe the next day she will eat carrots. But it gives her sort of like an opportunity to express an opinion while still making sure that she gets a bunch of healthy things into her. Um, you know, the other the other thing that we do is that we never make her a special meal. So she's basically from the time she could sit upright, which is, you know, around six months old, she's been eating the same food that we eat um, at dinner. Well, you know, I, I like your psychology. It's the only place they can refuse something that shows they have power. The problem is it, now I'm, you know, with Milk Street, my food is a lot spicier than it used to right. be. And so when I was cooking, quote unquote, American food, whatever that means, I could serve that to my kids, they ate what I ate. But now I just did a an Ethiopian stew mm-hmm. with a third of a cup of ground spices right. in it last night. That's not going into my one and a half year old's <laughs> mouth. That's not going to happen. Um, well, have you have you tried it? Well, no, I, I just, you know, it does have Aleppo pepper and right. some other stuff. So I mean, I found, so with my daughter, she she was eating spicy foods when she was an infant. Um, she went through a little phase where she's like, no, I don't want spicy. It was basically actually right when she started preschool and she started learning that other kids don't eat spicy food. Um, she came home one day and she's like, no, that's too spicy. Um, huh. But last week I had, a, I had a little pot of chili oil that I was putting on to my own food and she asked for it. And now she's been putting chili oil on every meal mm. now. Um, so, you know, I think little kids can handle spice if they, um, you know, Again, if they sort of don't realize that they're that they're supposed to not like it. Um, another thing that my wife and I are conscious of is that we never use negative words around food. So, you know, one thing I see parents sometimes do is say, oh, don't, like, don't try that. You're not going to like it. Or like, are you really going to eat that? You know, and they say things like that to their kids. And I think, you know, that sort of puts them in this mindset that they're not supposed to like a thing. Um you know, when, when my wife and I cook for each other or for the family, we always sort of enthusiastically praise each other for the cooking. We thank each other for cooking. We talk about different flavors. Um, we talk about what we're eating and why we like it. Um, and if she does something kind of gross, we don't tell her it's gross. We let her <laughs> we let her run with it. You know, so she went through this phase um, early on where she would take a little bit of everything, put it into a bowl and then pour her juice into it and then eat that all like slurp it all up. And it's, you know, it's kind of gross when it's like, Tuna fish and potatoes and <laughs> and 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 carrots all and in a bowl, yeah, all in yeah. a bowl with orange juice. But she was eating it, and that's fine. You know, it's like so now. Like my daughter, if you ask her what her favorite foods are, she says fish eyeballs. So whenever we get fish, she insists that we get it with the whole head on because she likes to eat the cheeks and eyeballs. Um, so like fish eyeballs, broccoli, and tofu. Yeah, you, you know, I, I I don't. You're straining your credibility. <laughs> I mean, you were okay with with the orange juice, the tuna fish. <laughs> But the fish, I, I, I've had fish eyes once in Tobago many years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Really? <laughs> it's really you know, really I think I think part of that is sort of like the first time she had fish eyeballs, like I told her, oh, you can try the fish eyeballs and made it into this sort of cool experience. And then she did it. And now every time, right. you know, when we ask her what her favorite foods are, okay. she says fish eyeballs and like smiles. And she, you know, I think she likes the reaction she gets out of this. But, you know, it sounds like a sneaky psychological trick, but, you know, it's re- really just like being enthusiastic about what they choose and, and praising them and smiling at them when they do good things. You know, it's it's like... It, you know, it is a psychological trick, but it's also just like good practice for humans in general, you know? <laughs> oh, yes. Well, it, it, I mean, look, if I'm still alive in 20 years, I'm going to call you mm-hmm. when your daughter's 23. Okay. And we'll just we'll just look back over the early years <laughs> and see if this theory held up. I, I, my guess is it will. Yeah. Uh, sounds like you're a great dad. But, you know, we'll compare notes, okay? All right. Sounds good. Kenji, thank you very much. How to uh, get your kid to eat fish eyeballs and and hot spices, too. Thanks. That was Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's the chief culinary consultant for Serious Eats, a food columnist for The New York Times, and also author of the book, The Food Lab. You know, people always ask me if my kids are adventurous eaters, and I have to admit that the answer is no. My oldest son likes steak, cheese, and bread, although he now claims to have given up meat. So let's just call it the bread and cheese diet. Which brings up the issue of whether parents pass along skills and also preferences to their kids. Well, there were three Brontes, Emily, Charlotte, and Anne, and two Amoses, Kingsley and Martin. The problem is that Kingsley Amos's father was a mustard manufacturer clerk, and Arthur Miller, another famous author, his parents were Polish immigrants who made clothing. Once again, heredity is a messy business. So maybe what I really want for lunch is a cheese sandwich. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, visit us at 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe or watch the latest season of our television show or order our latest cookbook, Cookish. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsaba. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.